to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. When Charles Dickens wrote his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, he began it with the words, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He was writing those words about 18th century France and the French Revolution, but he might have written those words today. The deadly coronavirus plaguing the world in the 21st century has presented mankind with the worst of times scenario, upending life in the world economy for the better part of 7.76 billion people who are living in the world today. Yet in the midst of what has brought us to an almost surreal existence, when much of the world is locked down and thousands are dying every day, there is a silver lining. Unlike pandemics in the past, the Black Death and the Julian Plague that I talked about last week that lasted for three centuries, this one has come at a time when there is some hope for a cure. That's a hope that didn't exist before the end of the last century. It is a time now when scientists have tools to find solutions to the puzzles that this virus presents, and hopefully to find a test, a cure, and a vaccine that will save thousands, even millions of lives in the years to come. In the midst of the American Revolution, the patriot Thomas Paine wrote, These are the times that try men's souls. He was talking about America's War of Independence, but he could have been talking about today. We are in the midst of another war with an invisible enemy that has yet to be fully defined, cured, or prevented. He went on to say, quote, The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and the thanks of man and woman, unquote. And he might also have been talking about us, about the Americans who flaunt the efforts of their government to protect them and the ones they love and their neighbors and their communities and their country. The summer soldiers of his day are today's generation of teenagers who run to the beaches when they're warned to stay at home. And they catch the virus and spread it to everyone they know. And today's sunshine patriots could be the wealthy politicians who talk a good game, but who mock those who are truly making every effort possible to defeat this disease and keep their countrymen safe and well from it. This is no ordinary virus, my friends. It transfers from person to person with extraordinary ease and with minimum contact, or no contact at all. And it can be transmitted by people who show no symptoms of being ill. It can also leap from animals to humans, according to the Chinese, and from humans to animals, it seems, according to the latest news from the Bronx Zoo, where they found a tiger that had caught the virus from an asymptomatic zoo employee, while the tiger's sister, two Amur tigers, and three African lions also showed similar symptoms. This is significant because it is an aspect of the virus that is new one we didn't know about, and one we really don't understand at all. And it doesn't make the problem of solving the contagion of the virus any easier. 
it makes it even more complicated. This virus has so much about it that is unknown, and that's a big part of the problem facing our scientists now as they work on the tests, the cures, and the vaccines. In order to address this virus effectively, you really need to know what you're dealing with, and we clearly don't know yet. This is a huge pandemic. It doesn't play politics, and it doesn't pay any attention to boundaries and borders. Last Friday, President Obama's National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, told the Washington Post's Cape Up podcast that President Donald Trump's, quote, utter incompetence, unquote, is killing, quote, tens of thousands of Americans during the coronavirus pandemic. She said, and I quote, rather than moving immediately from early January to do the things that we know we have to do, get in place the testing capacity, scale it up so that it's widely available, surge the purchase and the distribution of personal protective equipment, ventilators, masks, gloves, gowns, and get that to our hospital systems, build out a bed capacity, call back medical professionals, all these things that states and locals are now doing on the fly. These are the things we know we needed to do and do at the outset, and so they didn't do that. They waited two months, not the one month that the New York Times had a headline, a wasted month. It was wasted two months. And those two months have meant the difference between many tens of thousands of Americans dying who might otherwise not have died. He has been profoundly dishonest about the nature of the threat to the American people by downplaying it, by dismissing it, by, you know, comparing it to the flu and having his senior officials do the same, having Fox News do the same. He has misled the American people to such an extent that lives have been lost in the process, unquote. Now remember, this is the same woman who got on national television on three different channels on the Sunday following the Benghazi attack, and she brazenly lied about everything and blamed the attack on a poor filmmaker in California. Lying comes easily to her, and what she said about the president was dead wrong. Rice has a conveniently short memory. Like many Democrats who have accused the president of delaying action against the virus, she leaves out the part where the World Health Organization and the CDC said that the threat to Americans in the United States was, quote, low, unquote, until January 31st, when the World Health Organization declared a global emergency, the same day that the president decided to ban all travel from China to the United States. And it wasn't until March 11th, when the World Health Organization finally declared this terrible scourge a pandemic. She accused him of delaying because, quote, she said, he was trying to downplay the problem and buoy his electoral prospects mistakenly or to buck up the markets or because he doesn't care. I don't know what it was. I just know that he cost tens of thousands of American lives, unquote. And here she went from egregious irresponsibility to outright lies of the most despicable kind. She simply made up her facts. The reality is that the president was misled by the people he counted on to provide him with the facts. He isn't a scientist and he isn't a doctor, 
but he was depending on the scientists and the doctors, like the leader of the World Health Organization and the CDC, to keep him informed about the danger that might be facing us. They not only did not do that, but they misled him. They told him there was little risk to the United States from this virus. They told him and us over and over again that the risk was low, and he took them at their word. In the meantime, several million Chinese left China to celebrate their new year that began on January 25th. They traveled to all countries around the globe, carrying the virus that began in Wuhan with them, because by releasing these people and allowing them to travel around the world, they were complicit in the spread of this virus and the death of tens of thousands of people. But there was more to the story, much more. And you have heard much of it right here on the Friedman Report. My first report on the virus was January 15th. And the following week, I told you this. And I have consistently confirmed it from various sources prior to every report since then. There is increasing evidence, and it comes from serious and highly respected intelligence sources, that this virus, this strange and puzzling virus that is killing thousands of people around the world, was not a product of nature. It was a product of a bioweapons lab in Wuhan. And as I have said before, this is not conspiracy theory. It is a real conspiracy, and it was most probably aimed at us. So how do we go forward? Well, my friends, the news is not all bad. And in fact, it seems that the story of COVID-19 in the United States may be starting to turn around. Although there is no dedicated cure for the virus, there is a cocktail that has been used for years that seems to have had amazing results on some patients. The president has mentioned it in several of his daily coronavirus press briefings. And the Democrats, of course, have criticized him roundly for doing that. It's based on a combination of two drugs, anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine and the antibiotic azithromycin. And this drug has been seen to dramatically reduce the recovery time for some patients with COVID-19. Michigan State Representative Karen Whitsett said that she started experiencing shortness of breath, sinus issues, and swollen lymph nodes and tested positive for the virus and her condition began to deteriorate rapidly. She had heard President Trump talk about the hydroxychloroquine in his daily briefings, and she asked her doctor for it. She says within two hours after taking it, she began to improve dramatically, and she credits the president with saving her life. Now, there are many doctors around the country who resist giving this to their patients because it has not been clinically tested for the treatment of COVID-19. Hydroxychloroquine was approved for medical use in the United States way back in 1955, but it was approved for the treatment of malaria. It has also been used for the treatment of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. But this drug is now in the middle of a tug of war between government agencies, doctors, politicians, the CDC, and patients. On the one side are the government agencies like the CDC and the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, and some doctors and some politicians who want the drug to go through another round of exhaustive clinical trials to prove that it does what they say it does and that it has no harmful side effects. On the other side are other doctors, other politicians, and many patients who say that there is no time to wait 
for the months and even years that it might take to go through those trials. And the drug has already been approved as safe for nearly 65 years. Patients who might otherwise die but may be saved by this drug, just as State Representative Whitsett was, don't have the time to wait. We are in the middle of a massive medical emergency, and there is no reason why, if this medicine has shown to be safe, it shouldn't be available for patients who are seriously ill with COVID-19. In fact, it was this president who not that long ago signed a, quote, right to try legislation for patients whose terminal illness might be addressed by an experimental drug. Wouldn't the coronavirus fit into this category as a potentially fatal disease? And wouldn't it also permit then the potentially terminally ill patients the right to try hydroxychloroquine, even if it hasn't yet been approved by the FDA for use with this virus? The agencies and some doctors are worried about side effects and talked about the need for the clinical trials before they could be used on a new disease. But physicians who have been using this drug over many years for their own patients have reported that they've seen almost no negative side effects in their own patients, patients who have taken the prescribed dose for a short time. And one doctor reported that in decades of prescribing hydroxychloroquine to his patients, not one has ever ended up in the hospital as a result of the treatment. A physician in Monroe, New York, has treated more than 700 patients with hydroxychloroquine and claims that not one of his patients has died, not one needed to be intubated, and only two needed to be hospitalized. In France, Dr. Didier Raoul carried out two separate studies with excellent results and made the French public health officials change their decision to ban the drug. Strangely, Governor Cuomo of New York has put a restriction on the distribution of hydroxychloroquine to patients outside the hospital system. In other words, According to news reports, if you're a patient at home with COVID-19 and you're quarantining at home and you live in New York State, you cannot get a prescription for hydroxychloroquine from your doctor. According to the reports, you must be a patient in a hospital in order to receive the medicine. It would be better, I think, if the doctors made the decisions about who gets a particular medicine, not the politicians. In spite of resistance from high places, at least seven different pharmaceutical companies have begun manufacturing 250 million doses of the drug within the next two weeks. And here's another bit of good news in some of the worst hit parts of the country. There are hopeful signs that the curve that represents the number of COVID-19 patients with and without protective measures, like social distancing and staying at home, may be flattening. If that is true, or as soon as that is true, it will mean that the worst part of the epidemic will have passed. It hasn't happened yet, not in the hot spots like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, New Orleans. It doesn't mean that the epidemic is over, because there is always a chance that there will be another wave of infections in the fall, as the seasons change. But with every passing day, the chance for a cure is greater and the fall is still another six months away. A great deal can happen in six months. So what we need to do now is to stay close to home, remember to keep social distancing as a fact of our lives, and pay attention to the temporary rules that guide our lives right now, so that the curve will flatten, 
and the cases of COVID-19 will slowly decrease. What is really interesting is that the methods that we have been using here in the U.S. seem to be working, and the huge number of deaths that were predicted just haven't happened. So we have to be careful, and we have to be patient. It certainly isn't easy staying at home for weeks on end. But if it will save the lives of hundreds or even thousands of other people, I'd say it's well worth it. Now it's time for a short break, but when I come back, I want to talk about the V generation. That's what I call the generation that grew up entitled and largely uneducated and in their late teens or early 20s were faced with a life-altering experience of COVID-19 and made some very, very bad decisions. This is the virus generation. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. generation. V is for virus. It's the generation that partied through the pandemic and lived to tell the tale. Hopefully. We've been talking about them on and off for quite a while. We talked about how they grew up feeling entitled, knowing that they didn't have to compete, they only had to show up to win the prize. We've talked about how the schools that they attended didn't teach them how to think critically which means they didn't teach them how to make good decisions. And they didn't teach them grammar or history or geography or classic literature. But they did teach them about the women's movement, about intersectionality, about white privilege, and the superior rights of minorities and illegal immigrants. So as aging and over-the-hill teenagers, these are the young men and women who ran to the beaches during the greatest pandemic in our lifetime, partied together in close quarters, although they were warned to stay at least six feet apart, spread the virus among themselves, and then, after their spree, they carried it home to share it with friends and family. How generous. Even though it was originally said that older people, over 60 or 70 years old, were the most likely to contract the virus, the CDC has reported that young adults, ages 20 to 44, make up nearly one-third of the coronavirus cases in America. That is extraordinary. And when you figure how clear the warning was to stay home and keep social distance, the sheer lunacy of these young idiots, who not only risk their own life, but that of their parents, grandparents, their families and friends, and lots of people they didn't know, showed a total lack of personal responsibility and sheer common sense. It was stunning. And here's a question I haven't heard anyone ask. 
Where were the parents of all these irresponsible idiots? Who paid for these trips? And who may suffer the consequences? Any one of the revelers who ignored the advice of the CDC and later tested positive for COVID-19 must themselves remain in quarantine for an extended period of time. And here's the real problem. Anyone they subsequently came into contact with was also at a huge risk of now being infected. One partier in Florida, a guy by the name of Brady Sluter from Ohio, gained immortality by justifying his partying in Florida. He said, quote, At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. If I get corona, I get corona. Unquote. He later apologized in a long Instagram post in which he said, quote, I can't apologize enough to the people I've offended and the lives I've insulted. I'm not asking for your forgiveness or pity. I want to use this as a motivation to become a better person, a better son, a better friend, a better citizen. Listen to your communities and do as your health officials say. Life is precious. Don't be arrogant or think you're invincible like myself. I've learned from these trying times and I felt the repercussions to the fullest. This is an aside, but he doesn't exactly say what happened to him, what the repercussions were, but I suspect they were strong. Close parentheses. Unfortunately, simply apologizing doesn't justify my behavior, he continued. I'm simply owning up to my mistakes and taking full responsibility for my actions, unquote. Well, those are words, and uh, perhaps Mr. Sluter was truly contrite. But how do you apologize to people you don't know whom you've made sick? How do you apologize if they die? Words are cheap. I have no idea how old Mr. Sluter is, but whatever his age, if he was old enough to go on spring break with his friends in the middle of a major pandemic, he was also old enough to understand that it was a stupid thing to do and that by doing it, he put many people at risk, including his own family, his friends, the people who flew on the plane home with him, and many others that he may not even know about. It's fine to be apologetic after the fact. But his irresponsible actions and those of thousands of other of the young and stupid who indulged in spring break against all advice to stay home, and they may have changed the lives of many other people forever, because one of the insidious things about this virus, as you know, is that you can transmit it even if you don't have any symptoms yourself, and you can transmit it in the air without even knowing it. And here's another thing. Most of these partiers travel to their spring break destination using commercial airlines with many other unsuspecting passengers on board. Now that was okay maybe going down, but how about coming back after their frolicking with so many others in close quarters on the beach? How many people were infected simply by being on the same plane with them, standing near them in line or sitting next to them on the plane. The extent of the damage may never be known. So getting back to the V generation, what happens to them now? Where will they go from here? What happens to people who enter the real world after college? Are they trained to get a job? How far will a degree in gender, sexuality, and feminist studies take them? And how much will their sense of entitlement get them? 
What will the experience of living through the COVID-19 pandemic have taught them? All good questions, not so many good answers. But the question is important because some of these men and women will be leading this country within the next 15 to 30 years. And that thought is downright scary. It might be helpful to look back at the experience of those who lived through the Spanish flu at the end of the second decade of the 20th century. According to the CDC, the 1918 pandemic known as the Spanish flu was caused by the H1N1 virus and the first known patient was reportedly identified in Kansas. We experienced a rerun of this virus in 2009 but that was a relatively small pandemic. The pandemic of 1918 is thought to have killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide, 50 million, including some 675,000 people in the United States. In fact, the devastation was so great in America that it lowered the average life expectancy in America by more than 12 years by the time it was all over. The first recognized case is thought to have been in March 1918 at a U.S. Army camp in Kansas. And because World War I was raging in Europe at the time and the United States was fully engaged in it, American soldiers were being shipped back and forth into the war zone, and some of them carried the virus with them. Most countries were censoring coverage of the epidemic in the face of the war, Spain was the first country to begin reporting on this epidemic, so the 1918 flu became known as the Spanish flu, even though it seems to have started in Kansas. The devastation that this virus caused before it subsided in 1919 was enormous. In one small Alaskan town of Brevik Mission, which was home to 80 adults, most of whom were Inuit, in one five-day period between November 15th and November 20th, 72 of the 80 adults succumbed to the virus. No one really knows how the virus reached this tiny outpost in the middle of nowhere, but the devastation was nearly complete. The importance of this town, however, is that the bodies of the casualties were buried in the permafrost, and so they were preserved. In 1951, a man by the name of Johann Hulten who was a student of virology at Iowa University, traveled to the mass grave in Brevik Mission with the permission of the elders, exhumed two bodies that had been preserved by the permafrost. He took some lung tissue from the two bodies and brought them to a molecular pathologist, Jeffrey Taubenberger, at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in Bethesda, Maryland. They hoped that by studying the tissue, they would be able to obtain vital information that could lead to a cure. But it wasn't until 1997, when at the age of 72, Hulton returned to Brevik Mission and once again, with the permission of the elders, exhumed another body, this time of a woman, and removed her lungs for further study. And this was the key. From this tissue, scientists were able to decode the virus and develop a vaccine that would prevent the Spanish flu from ever creating the kind of pandemic that wiped out so many people in the 1918 pandemic. 
One unusual characteristic of this virus was that it caused an unusually high death rate among healthy young people ages 15 to 34 years old. Back in 1918, there was little understanding of infectious pathogens and there were barely any tools to study them and there's certainly no knowledge about how to cure them. So the virus ran its course and some of the accounts from 1918 sound familiar to what we're hearing and seeing today. Josie Brown was a Navy nurse who served at the Naval Hospital in Great Lakes, Illinois. She wrote about what she saw there. Quote, the morgues were packed almost to the ceiling with bodies stacked one on top of another. The morticians worked day and night. You could never turn around without seeing a big red truck loaded with caskets for the train station so bodies could be sent home. We didn't have the time to treat them. We didn't take temperatures. We didn't even have time to take blood pressure. We would give them a little hot whiskey toddy. That's about all we had time to do, unquote. And there was something else that was happening in America that year as a result of the Spanish flu. Throughout the country, it caused the breakup of many families. Remember, I said that the victims of this horrible pandemic were largely young people. And many of them were young parents with young families. And when they died, they often left behind their young children who survived the pandemic. And these children were often split up and sent to various relatives or put into orphanages, which were still prevalent throughout the country in 1918, although most of them provided a poor environment for young children to grow up in. There are many accounts from the survivors of those family breakups, and I wish I had the time to tell some of their stories because we might learn something from them in these days when another deadly pandemic is running rampant around the world. But things are very different today. It's a different virus. It's spread around the world in weeks instead of months. The speed of travel and communications have accelerated the speed in which the virus has brought our world to a screeching halt. And our scientists need to solve this one too. But in 2020, we do have the technology and we do have the tools to figure this out. And what about the children who survived this pandemic? I wonder what they will remember. How will they record their memories? Of course, so much has changed in the last century. Our children are probably not as tough as the children that had to live through the pandemic of 1918. There was a dearth of information back then, no radio or television, and when a virus hit, it hit its victims hard. It was swift and deadly, and nobody really understood why. Our children are the products of life with instant communications. Their accounts will be different from those children living in 1918. Today's children will record their thoughts and experiences on Twitter and Snapchat, Instagram and Facebook, and their accounts may last for another century or most likely they will not. They'll be written in the kind of shorthand that our kids have invented for their mini communications, and we may never understand it fully. Still, we will have to deal with it to help them through this, to show them that there is power in knowledge 
and that by sharing knowledge, we can help each other survive. And as they watch their parents cope and survive, they will learn valuable lessons that will carry them forward through the trials that they themselves will face as they grow into adulthood. Maybe this will make them stronger than the snowflakes who feel entitled at the expense of others, who think it's okay just to show up. In this crisis, everyone can have a role to play, and it's a life lesson that will hold them in good stead throughout their lives. And here's a piece of good news about the coronavirus, and uh, I can close out this segment with this because Scripps Research has reported that it may have discovered an Achilles heel in the COVID-19 virus. The research shows a specific area of the virus that could possibly be targeted with drugs that could keep it from spreading. Biologist Ian Wilson, who led the scientific team, said that this area, quote, is crucial to spreading the highly contagious virus and its composition suggests that it would be vulnerable to drugs, unquote. Well, this is exciting. The discovery was published in the journal Science and it's part of a global effort to find a cure for COVID-19. There are teams all over the world today working on developing new treatments, discovering tests for the virus, drugs to cure it, and vaccines to keep it from coming back. Think about it. What a wonderful age we live in when even in the middle of this nightmare, we have within our own community the scientists and the technology and the tools to attack this virus to figure it out, and to cure it and keep it from returning to attack us again. This latest possibility may just be another long shot, but you know, it only takes one. And with so many laboratories in so many places, in so many countries around the world looking for a cure, looking for a test, looking for a vaccine, and working on it day and night, it's only a matter of time before someone finds it. My friends, Tuesday, April 7th, was a somber day. It was the day that the number of deaths caused by COVID-19 in New York City surpassed the number of deaths caused by the terrorist attack on 9-11. And it reminds us of the magnitude of what we're facing. It also reminds us that we're Americans and we are capable of facing this together because that is the only way we will be able to get through it. We can support each other as we struggle to get beyond what was only a few short months ago, unimaginable. Yet here we are, and if we help each other and stand together, even when we have to stand six feet apart, we will get through this. And it's time for another short break. And when I come back, I want to talk to you about something a little different from a number of points of view. I want to take a look at America and talk about the different faces of America, the things that still, in spite of everything, make us great. This will be a multi-part series. I'm not going to do it all today. I'm going to concentrate on one area today, and then each week we will look at another, another face of America. Today, I want to talk about country living. 
What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L, dot com slash sleep. As we say, let the silent voices be heard. Shadow Bannon, editing, censorship, blocking, and adherence to political correctness are seen as serious threats to our God-given right of free speech. Suppressing free speech, the very cornerstone of our society, is not in the best interest of our listeners, readers, and those who provide our content. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. You know, the news is so heavy these days, and I was looking for something to lighten things up a bit. And I was thinking about the America that I grew up in and the America I live in now, which is not that different, believe it or not. I actually grew up in a suburb of New York City, and I've moved around quite a lot in my lifetime, maybe more than was good for me. But in any case, here I am. My mom used to tell me that when I was little, I used to say that I wanted to be a farmer. I don't ever remember actually wanting that, even thinking it, no less saying it. But she was right, nonetheless, as it turned out. I don't live in the city now. I'm not really a city mouse. Although I have lived in New York City for a while and in the heart of Jerusalem for a while. And I lived in Richmond, Virginia, too. But at heart, I guess I'm really a country mouse. Joni Mitchell wrote a song about someone like me. She called it, I'm going to be a country girl again with an old brown dog and a big front porch and rabbits in the pen. Well, that's me now. 
no rabbits, but plenty of chickens, and definitely an old brown dog in a big front porch. And at the end of the day, after we've taken care of the sheep and fed the chickens and put them in the coop for the night, he and I, my old brown dog and I, sit on that porch and we watch the sun go down. It's a nice life. So we live on the farm in the middle of nowhere, right in the heartland. As far as I can tell, what they call the heartland is anywhere a few hundred miles west of the east coast and a few hundred miles east of the west coast. They call it flyover country, but I call it God's country. And that's where I live, and I love it. So if, by the way, in the course of the Friedman Report that you hear every week, you hear also a rooster, well, now you know why. He's not a visitor. He just lives here, and every once in a while, he makes his presence known. So that's what I want to talk about today, what it's like when you don't live in the city. It's one of the things most Americans don't think much about, and most of our kids that live in the city don't know much about. For example, today's city kids have no idea where their food comes from. Hamburger comes all chopped up in packages covered with plastic wrap. Eggs come from boxes. Milk comes from big containers or plastic bottles. And if you try to explain to a kid, a city kid, that meat comes from an animal, a very big steer, and eggs come from inside a chicken, and milk comes from cows, they'll think you're crazy. The schools just don't teach them those things anymore. When I was in fourth grade, we had a whole study section about life on the farm. It was about a little boy who lived on a big farm with his family, yes, in the heartland, in a place called Iowa. And I remember that he went to school on a big yellow school bus, and his dog walked him to the bus stop, and then waited for him at the end of a very long driveway every afternoon when the school bus brought him home again. And we learned about how this farm family lived, growing crops, raising animals like cows and pigs and chickens, and growing their own vegetables in their own gardens. And the boy had chores to do every day, like collect the eggs from the hen house and pick the weeds in the garden. Maybe that's when I told my mom that I wanted to be a farmer. The funny thing is that when I was all grown up, I forgot that dream and went on to live in Israel in a city and become an intelligence analyst. And then, after a number of years, I came back to the United States and started my own company just outside of Boston. And I even ran for Congress. And I'll tell you a secret. After seeing what goes on in Washington these days, for what passes for government, I'm really glad I lost. And then, one day, my husband told me that he had the possibility of a new job, and he asked me how I'd like to live in the heartland. And I said, you know, I never lived there before. Let's do it. So he went on ahead, and I took care of selling our house in Massachusetts, and he found a place to live. He called it a farm, but I didn't see it until I packed up my van with everything the movers left behind, plus two cats and a dog, 
and I drove out through parts of the country I had never seen before until I got to our new farm. And you know what? It was exactly like the farm in the book that I learned about in the fourth grade. Exactly. And as far as I was concerned, I had come home. So what is it like living on a farm and growing your own food? Well, it's hard work, but it is also very rewarding. And living on a farm is so peaceful. We watch the sun come up in the morning and the moon come up at night. Sunrise, sunset, every day is a gift. But here's the thing. If you think that today's farmer is the guy in overalls with a straw hat and a hayseed hanging out of his mouth, uneducated and simple, boy, have you got that wrong. Farming in the 21st century is a high-tech business, and most farmers are highly educated and always learning new things about the chemistry of the land, about environmental stewardship, and the science of farming. The science of farming. Their tractors are equipped with the latest computer technology that tells them where to plant the seeds, where they already planted the seeds so they don't plant there again, what kind of nutrients to add to the soil and where, how to track the conditions of the soil, and it's all called precision agriculture. It's a science all of its own. And the farmer today works very, very hard. Farming is not a nine to five job. It starts before the sun comes up and often ends after it goes down. And when there is a calf being born or a sick sheep, the farmer may be up half the night taking care of them. To tell you the truth, if you want to be a farmer today and you don't know about this stuff and you're not willing to work like hell, you'd better not even try. But farmers today are having a very difficult time. It's not just the city kids that disrespect him. In his brief presidential campaign, Mike Bloomberg made a joke, a bad joke, about how easy it was to be a farmer. You make a hole, you put a seed in it, and up comes the corn, he said. He insulted the very people who work their hearts out to provide the food that he takes for granted. Today, the farmers who grow the corn and the wheat for bread that we eat and raise the cattle that provide our steaks and hamburger and the huge flocks of chickens, the hens that are raised for their eggs and those that are raised for roast chicken on our tables, these are the people who make it possible for us to eat so well, who provide us with the sustenance so that others can do whatever it is they want to do in their own city lives. And if you ever wonder exactly how difficult it is to be a farmer, imagine, if you will, that you have invested $100,000 in a high-tech tractor, and you spend your days preparing the fields and planting the crops, and then it starts to rain. And it rains and rains and your fields flood and your crops are lost. Or the China trade deal that you were counting on so that you could sell your crops, that falls through. Or the COVID-19 comes to wreck all your plans. If you're a farmer, you depend on the weather and you depend on world events and even Mother Nature, 
And when it doesn't work for you, there is nothing you can do except hope for a better year next year. But the bills still have to be paid. The mortgage, the payments on the tractor, maybe there are medical bills and so forth. And so it goes. But there's more than that. Because the farmer loves his work. That's why he does it. Maybe it's been in his family for generations. It's what he's known all his life, and it's what he loves. He loves to feel the warm earth between his fingers. And he takes pride when he looks at his field of fine, tall corn and golden wheat. And when he takes his crop to market and gets a fair price, he knows he has done well. But there's a dark side to this. Do you know that one of the highest rates of suicide in the country is among farmers? And no wonder. They are the most unappreciated people in the country, even though they provide the most valuable service to the people of America. They put food on America's dinner tables. But the nation's farmers are also proud. They don't want handouts from the government. They want to earn their keep to plant and harvest their crops and sell their meat and their eggs for a fair price so that they too can not only survive but thrive. And when they fail for no fault of their own, the pain is sometimes too much to bear. They feel that they have let down their families, that somehow they have broken their promise, that they have let down their heritage, that they have failed. This is the dark side of our agriculture in America, and we need to recognize it and address it, because without our farmers, we won't have food on our tables, and we too will be unable to provide for our families. I'm not a farmer with a massive high-tech tractor and hundreds of acres to tend to, but on my little farm, I'm surrounded by much larger farms, and the people who own them and work them are my friends. I respect them greatly for what they do. So the next time you take a bite of an apple from Oregon or have a sandwich on a fresh piece of bread made from Kansas wheat or a tender steak from a Nebraska steer, remember that there was a farmer or a cattle rancher who had a hand in bringing that to your table. Our food supply chain is something we need to protect and our farmers and ranchers are the ones we need to thank for doing the hard lifting that brings that food to us. So as I sit on the porch with my old brown dog and look over the fields of the setting sun, I am thankful that there is this little piece of our nation's heartland that has room for me. It's a little bit of heaven for this country mouse. Now, I want to say a few words to my friends out there about what's really good and special about this week. It certainly is different. It doesn't happen every year, but this week, the holidays of Passover and Easter fall on the same week. This is Holy Week for Christians, and it culminates on Easter Sunday. And on Wednesday evening, Jews celebrate the first night of Passover holiday which also lasts for a week. This holiday is observed with a festive meal and the retelling of how the Israelites escaped from Egypt. 
It's a story that is thousands of years old. It's a festive meal. And there's a lot of singing. A lot of singing. And that's part of what makes it a wonderful holiday, a celebration. You know, it is really fitting, particularly this year, that the two holidays come together. Because Holy Thursday is the day that Christians celebrate the Last Supper. And the Last Supper was the Passover Seder that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before his death. Through the years, through the centuries, the history of the Jews and Christians has been fraught with religious clashes and misunderstandings of hatred and fear. But there is more that we have in common between us than what is different, particularly this year, the year of the plague. So as the Passover Seder unfolds, the story is told of the attempts by Moses to free his people from the slavery of the Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt. When Pharaoh refused to free the Israelites from slavery, the Lord sent him a series of ten plagues. They were plagues on the Egyptians to convince the Pharaoh to free the Israelites. All these plagues were awful, turning water into blood, infestations of frogs, lice, and biting flies, a disease on their cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally, lastly, the death of their firstborn. And at that final plague and the loss of his son, the Pharaoh released the Israelites from slavery. And that's the story that Jews all around the world tell on this first night of Passover. Today, we are all subject to a massive plague that is infecting the world and has already killed tens of thousands of good people. This plague is not very selective, and as I said before, it does not recognize borders and boundaries, or political parties, or religious affiliations. It doesn't care what color your skin is, or what God you worship, and we are all at its mercy. So this year, Jews who usually celebrate Passover with family and friends will celebrate alone, with only their immediate family members the people they live with. And Christians have been told not to go to church on Easter Sunday, but to observe from home. Because in most states, groups of more than 10 are forbidden even to worship. So how do we, Christians and Jews, who must celebrate our communal holidays apart from family and friends, how do we make these holidays meaningful and memorable as they should be? This year, Easter and Passover, will be events of a lifetime, Easter and Passover, in the year of the plague. This year, while we need to maintain our isolation in our homes on Passover and Easter, the stories of the Passover and the resurrection will take on new meanings. We must all have faith that we will make it out of this dark space into the light with the plague behind us. If we must stay in the safety of our homes with only our immediate family this year, we should also look forward to the freedom from the plague that next year will hopefully bring. Meanwhile, we can anchor ourselves in our traditions, traditions that have deep meaning for us and that will help to carry us through this dark time. 
through our faith and our hope, so that this year's holidays will be meaningful and memorable. This year we may, we must be physically apart, but we can look forward to next year when we will be able to celebrate together again in good health. I wish all my friends, whatever your religion, whatever God you worship, whatever holiday you celebrate, I wish you to be safe and well and that your family will be safe and well. And I wish you peace in your heart. God bless you all. You've been listening to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.